You are listening to the Enormo Cast. So many of you probably feel like it's a flex to bring your grubby outdoor gear to the gym. Yes, we see the red dirt on your big wall harness, sir, and we all know you were doing real climbing over the weekend. But the rest of us know that it's almost essential to have kit that's packed just for the gym and not mixed up with our outdoor stuff, and Black Diamond has you covered there too. Check out the Mondito Chalk Pot for those bouldering sessions, when wearing your chalk bag makes you look like a doof. The Stone 42 Duffel is perfect for the arduous approach when the parking lot is, you know, pretty full. And the Airnet Harness is the lightest, fastest harness around since, as we've noted many times before, you can leave your cordelettes, your spare belay device, the knife, the bell beaners, the walkie-talkies, cams, nuts, draws, extra lockers at home when you red point the new 12A in the gym. Finally, Beatty's casual climbing apparel like the Craig Denim Pats can flip from the gym to the street to the cliff without a care and make you look oh so chill when you dry fire and land flat on your back with a loud thwap. So let Black Diamond kit you out for the gym and the crag by going to blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local gym pro shop and make your next gym flex be simply giving a good belay and some encouragement to a total stranger. When it comes to Sportiva, I often praise the longevity of their venerated classics like the Mira. Because, well, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Italian Baroque, that is. But as we know, I'm a stick in the mud whose glory days are well behind him. But you, dear listener, still have your best days waiting to jump out at you like a puppy wearing a backpack full of caramel corn. So hey, forward thinkers, let's take a gander at what's new over at Sportiva.com. The redesigned Cantana Lace is an absolute edging machine. The updated Tarantula line provides comfort and performance at a price point for everybody. The TX2 Evo adds even more performance to Sportiva's stow-and-go approach shoes. And the new Mantra is a minimalist slipper so light and flowy, you'll swear you accidentally showed up to the gym in only your underwear. Just like in that dream you had last night. Don't worry, I just looked down too. So when it comes to keeping you thinking ahead... Sportiva is there with innovation at every turn. Why not see what's up and head over to Sportiva.com or follow them on Instagram. And remember, Sportiva is a proud sponsor of the EnormaCast. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Time and Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is May 2nd. About 10 a.m. here in Colorado, 
2022, and this is episode 100, no, 241, a conversation with climber author Jonathan Howland. And who is Jonathan Howland? Well, he is someone who did something audacious, risky, vulnerable. He wrote a literary fiction novel about rock climbing and then published it. I know, I know. It's like free soloing the Dawn Wall. Not exactly, but this is an interesting thing because there actually is very little legacy of climbing fiction being successful. And I started to kind of filter through just the few sort of famous works in my mind. And I got rid of the thrillers, the sort of climbing adjacent things like Iger Sanction or a lot of Jeff Long's writing has sort of a climbing background, but some sort of caper thriller thing, plot-driven thing going on in there. I got rid of the mountaineering books, even the fiction ones. It's it's pretty typical to, you know, have your summit mountain crucible in your fictional adventure or novel. So got rid of those and uh, left me with just like, who's writing literary fiction about rock climbing? I could only actually think of Chris Coleman, who wrote As Above, So Below, but that, you know, was a self-published thing, didn't go out to that many people. Yeah, so who's writing big novels, character-driven novels about rock climbing? Almost nobody. Well, I'm sure it's not nobody. So you guys can message me with your with your suggestions. But, you know, like I said, filters. Rock climbing, novel, literary fiction. What's literary fiction? Look it up. But here's a hint. There can't be spies trying to kill each other. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. And frankly, I was skeptical when approached with this book, Native Air, because I am not drawn to climbing fiction. I find the real world stuff is plenty exciting and interesting and fascinating and full of surprises. However, I got into it. Reluctantly, it dragged me in. And by the end of the book, I was fascinated and astounded at what Jonathan had created. Like all literature, we're looking at real life themes themes that sort of thrum the very base notes of why we climb. So then I pursued to have Jonathan on. And what we have here is a very meditative, slow burn interview about writing process, about those themes, about who Jonathan is and how it influenced his book. And no, I don't think you have to have read the book to enjoy this interview because we go way beyond the book. But to get you stoked, and because I'm a fanboy of William Finnegan, author of Barbarian Days, come on the show, Bill. Always always got a mic open for you, but I'm going to read his endorsement of Native Air, and then we'll go to the interview. Quote, You know there are people whose obsession is big wall climbing. You may have seen the documentaries, read the articles, perhaps even read a memoir, but you've never read anything that takes you so deep inside the anchoritic psyche of helpless, abject cliff worship. The narrator is ambivalent and supremely observant. His partner is an absolutist. See Ishmael and Ahab. Sal Paradiso and Dean Moriarty. This is literary fiction of a high order, with a physical immediacy and a specificity that never let up, and then a riveting next-generation denouement. The final top-out will destroy you. Climb on. William Finnegan. And don't worry, I also had to look up Anchoritic. I'm 
pretty much positive, Chris, that I'm the least interesting climber you've ever hosted on your show. So, grew up in Santa Barbara area, moved to L.A. when I was in middle school. Just found it so depressing, the L.A. suburbs, after living in slightly more rural, Mediterranean, mountainous, southern central coast. And it turns out that my pediatrician in L.A. was a... um, was a mountaineer. In addition to, you know, running his medical office, he he ran a thing called an explorer post, but it wasn't, you know, they didn't wear uniforms or uh, pay dues, but somehow under the auspices of, of, I guess, BSA, Boy Scouts of America, maybe they got some insurance, he ran an explorer post that was focused on mountaineering, almost all Sierra, although they went to South America and, and other states. So I got hooked up with them when I was, you know, 13, And at some point, some little subgroup of them took me, and I was much younger, to Joshua Tree, 1974. And that's where I first uh, did technical steep things. And and I was really smitten. And then it became, you know, it was pretty much an obsession for age 14 to 20, 21, culminating in a a really kind of disappointing, grim, depressing season in Yosemite in the fall of 81. And then I pretty much quit. I mean, I backpacked, I hiked, you know, I tagged some summits, but I didn't do anything technical for, I don't know, 20 years, you know, had a teaching career, had two kids, had two marriages, had, you know, lots of, uh, you know, depressive episodes and, and, you know, lots of happy times too. But climbing was not part of my life at all. And then I reconnected with a college friend, uh, David Goldstein, who's a great climber, Boulder, Colorado, and a lifelong acolyte and advocate. And he, uh, he and I met in Joshua Tree. I hadn't seen him in, you know, 15 years or more and, um, did some routes and it's just like, wow, talk about lighting an old flame. And that's 20 years ago. And since then I've been even more obsessed. I've just been climbing a lot in the last 20 years. So when you got back into it, was it happenstance or was it a premeditated thing? Did you, did you have a moment where you're like, God, I missed that and I should go check it out again? Or how did that happen? How did it rekindle itself like logistically? I think it happened on Mount Humphreys. I started, you know, I started doing more, again, more backpacking, more peak bagging. And my kids were a little older and I had a little more independence and, and time. And I started enjoying doing things that were steeper. It just kind of came from inside. And then I I thought, well, shit, I want to do that. I've always wanted to do that route on Humphreys. It's fourth class, but I don't really want to do it on rope. So I I got some gear, pulled out some old gear, I forget, and got two friends, neither of whom was really a climber. And we went up and did it and it was fabulous. And then of course that same summer, you know, Cathedral Peak and other sort of moderate fifth class things. Uh, and, and then I think it was after that, that I actually met Dave and Joshua Tree. So it was something kind of welling up from inside. It really surprised me. But of course, the other wrinkle here is that, you know, when I was a kid and, and even, and, and then later as a young adult, there were no such thing as climbing gyms. And so I had heard of them. This is actually something that's very much featured. It's a, it's a, obviously, thank, thank God, a, a minor feature, but it, it exists in part two of the novel that the narrator wanders into a climbing gym after having not been in climbing for a long time. And he's kind of like, what the hell is this? And he kind of denigrates it as a, as a gross, you know, 
attempted facsimile of, of the real thing. And of course, that's sort of how I felt too. But I was also got somewhat obsessed with gym climbing, partly because of that facsimile, just that, uh, you know, that, um, I don't know, cousin of climbing that we that we can do indoors and it's so close and convenient and there's a bit of a climbing culture there too in fact that's where i started meeting some other climbers chris stone the fairly well-known climber jason wells and i became really good friends and met at the gym and then a whole host of others so a lot of the climbing i've done in the last uh, 20 years has, has been with people that i met at the gym or met through people at the gym yeah so you know that that's a curiosity what was the t- time frame between 1981 and I think that's when you said you you walked away from it to uh to come back. It's like 2000, okay, 2000, 19 years, yeah. Yeah, 19 years and and a lot of changes in climbing. Oh, completely. Um, I mean, I had read yeah. about them a little bit. I'd read about gyms, I'd read about sport climbing which didn't exist mm-hmm. in 1981, but I didn't know anything about uh I wasn't even curious, frankly. I just thought all well, that that was a interesting phase of my life. It's over, but um, but getting back into it was really, really healing in some ways because I think I, I left a little, a little chagrined and wounded and disappointed and came back. And again, a lot of thanks to Dave because he's a, he's kind of a master of the craft. Um, you know, the guy that climbed Astro Man uh, in good style at age 45 uh, for the first time. Just being being with him and, and sort of uh, learning how to do things uh, more intentionally and with greater savvy, uh, that was hugely helpful to me. Well, it's interesting too if you said you came back in 2000 or so and which is kind of the dawn of the gym era in a lot of ways. Um they've yeah. been around th- through the 90s but very rare and kind of more of these like training dungeons. You're in San Francisco so you were probably at Mission Cliffs. Right? Yeah, I was in Mission Cliffs, which is a really yeah. light, airy, you know, sunny side of the city place to be, kind <laughs> of, you know, as gyms go, it's pretty decent. I was there yeah. yesterday. And it was like an early, you know, that was an early big deal gym. I was down in LA at the Rock Creations, which, you know, I was just joking with somebody recently how sort of small and, and dingy they are now. But um, these were a couple of the early gyms that really were creating, you know, I think the, the roots of what we call gym culture. But the other thing is we, we equate all this stuff, you know, I too can be negative about gyms or whatever. Us olds, you know, we have we have a tendency to look askance, but but uh, you know, Rock Creation in L.A. Um, Mission Cliffs, where you were, became like the focal point of the actual outdoor climbing community too. Like that's we hadn't yet like created this echelon of pure gym climbers in yeah. a lot of ways. So no, the, um, the, the, I can know, imagine walking in there was like returning actually to the to the climbing scene gym or outside or whatever it was absolutely. the climbing scene and even seeing you know you know uh hans florine would come through and just working out or jim herson was there all the time and then his kids and seeing their family when the kids were infants and they were just dragging them around in little car seats while the parents could climb yeah it's kind of yeah. crazy do you want to talk about 1981 or do we want to talk about it in context of the book it's not or? that interesting really it's just okay <laughs> I mean, you just dropped it there, and I, well, I no, like. That, I have to pick it up a little bit. Sure, that, I, the thing that's interesting to me about it is that I think I was, I, you know, if if there is a, a significant overlap, and of course everybody wants to know this, who's interested in the book is, you know, am I the narrator? And and I would emphatically, too emphatically, reject that. But if if there is a significant overlap, it's in who I was as a younger person, as a younger man. And and I think the bigger piece of this was just 
a little bit of a, you know, of a seeker, a depressive, and someone who kind of lit, uh, freighted climbing with um, meanings that it couldn't either sustain or support and, d- and didn't wow. deserve. And I think that's that were, that's what I was like at age, you know, 19, 20, 21. And when I got back to it, I was freer, you know, and, and a lot, a lot, able to experience climbing for what it is and not for what I needed it to be. And also just more self-possessed and also just generally lighter in, in spirit and um, all that. So, yeah. So in 81, you know, we, we you know, a f- couple things happened. One, we were in Yosemite for two months. It rained a shit ton. I took a horrendous fall on Rickson's Pinnacle uh, on a route that's no longer open because of, of uh, loose rock. It had nothing to do with loose rock. It had to do with incompetent climbing. But, you know, a good, like, <laughs> 40, 50-footer, you know, on a stopper. And um, and that was scary. But probably more scary was two days later, we ascended Half Dome vis-a-vis uh, the regular Northwest Face route. And, we, and it took three days. So we were three days on the wall. Three of us, Dave Goldstein, Bill Zildjian, and I, at the margin of our competence, maybe past it, moving very slowly, hauling, all that stuff. And, you know, we, we did it. We summited. We, we ate it a lot. But it wasn't fun. And it wasn't really that <laughs> satisfying. And then in November, I, I moved to San Francisco and did an internship at the Sierra Club for the winter. And that was kind of a little dark, too. So yeah, I don't know. I I I, I think if if my life circumstances had been a little different, I might have stayed in climbing longer. But got involved with a woman who wasn't a climber and uh, needed to land on my feet professionally after college. I didn't didn't come from money or have any money, so I really had to get a job right away. Got into other sports too. So right. Yeah, I mean you're you're sort of um, you're dropping like a self describing yourself as a depressive or. Um, you know, these dark times, you know, is climbing now uh, a part of, you know, dealing with that? Or do you find it to be this, this, like you said, you're, you're more light now. Did that happen with the climbing or is it just kind of irrelevant to that? I, I, I don't know. I think climbing might perhaps has helped. I'm not sure. I mean, there's a couple, there's some things that I like about climbing that have nothing to do with climbing. And one of them is just the discipline of having to be fit enough. You know, I'm not a natural. I'm not like a kid who, you know, could have made the gymnastics team. So for me to to be able to climb at my best, which, you know, by your program standards is, is not particularly accomplished, but for me to be able to climb in a way that's satisfying to me, I really have to be focused all the time on it, not just I can't, like, climb my way into, you know, competence. I, ha- I, re- I have to train. I have to you know, I don't know, exercise and all that stuff and, uh, and be sort of mentally available to the activity when I get there. Um, and I really like that about climbing and yeah, I think that's helped me sort of just generally psychologically as well. I like that about a lot of things. I like that about writing. I like that about distance running. I like it about yoga. I like it about sleep. So let's talk a little bit about you as a writer. You know, I, I would assume, um, I don't know this actually, but I would assume that you didn't just like pick up the pen or you know ergo the word processor at the moment you started this book so let's talk a little bit about your um path with writing who you are as a writer and then and then i think we can seg into what the hell you were thinking um writing Mm -hmm. a a novel about climbing well writing is is sort of my other obsession 
And, you know, native air is the intersection in this Venn diagram between sort of two obsessions that I've had for a long time. But writing probably even longer. I even tried to write about that season in Yosemite in the 1980s. You know, couldn't get anywhere with it or on it or even understand it enough to do anything artful. Since uh, the late 80s, I've been an on and off the wagon fiction writer. And uh, in that time, I've, you know, produced 20 pieces of short fiction, a novella, another novel, none of which are published, although I think there's path now to a collection of eight or nine of the short stories to get published. It's with an editor now. Like I said, on and off the wagon, you know, I, I sort of get a notion and, uh, and pursue it and really enjoy the process. Usually it's always a fight, but there's something sort of... Uh, sublime and 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 uh satisfying about it too i feel that uh some of my sort of happier or more more content periods of life have been when i haven't had the writing bug but in 2013 had a bunch of kind of life changes around 2010 when uh my marriage ended and then a year later when um i got together with courtney um my I call her my us, my unmarried spouse now. Uh, and that's, you know, that's 11 years. And just a, I don't know, healthier places for me in, in so many uh, ways, not the least of which is just not fighting the battle of self-acceptance, not dreading the future quite as much as I used to. And in 2013, I was on a climbing trip with um, a friend, Dan Rampey, in the Eastern Sierra, a week-long junket, sort of hitting up a bunch of crags day after day, and then with a, with an objective sort of in the middle. And this one was, I think, the north buttress of Mount Good, outside of uh, Bishop, but up on the crest, a really nice, long, technical route. And uh, I think the day after the Mount Good climb, a rest day, I went into a coffee shop there in Bishop Stellar Brew and uh, took a bunch of notes on this thing that had been cooking in me for a while. I, and I wasn't even thinking about it, but I was, some part of me was aware of it. Just took a bunch of notes. So that was 2013 in June. In December of that year, my uh, good friend, really good friend and climbing partner and someone whom, you know, I, I met at the gym, Bill Beckwith, went on a number of trips with in the Sierra, Eastern Sierra, Red Rock, Nevada. And he was with me through that period of kind of personal tumult. So, you know, like 2008 to 2013. Anyway, in December, he died in a car and he got hit by a car. He was on his motorcycle right here in the city. And it was just gutting. I mean, it's just, you know, it's always hard to remember and to talk about. Yeah, you have to use a razor on this part. But anyway, uh, that, uh, you know, that grief was, I'd felt grief before, but there was something about it that also just, there was this, I felt this awful personal loss and also this kind of injustice around it. And the absurdity too, that, you know, somebody who, you know, who was, uh, he had ridden his motorcycle to the tip of South America from, you know, from Divisadero and McAllister Street in San Francisco on a more-than-year-long trip and nearly died of appendicitis in Argentina. 
and a lot of that motorcycle ride was on back roads and dirt roads and and that he would just get creamed at you know Steiner and Fell in San Francisco that I mean it was horrible and absurd so uh, so, you know, so, I don't know, that was a hard winter, 2013, 2014, and, and, it, and I didn't realize it at the time, but when I picked up, started looking at my notes again for what became Native Air, I had a whole other angle, and, and basically the, narrati- the narrator and the narr- narr- narrative point of view was kind of birthed out of the grief that I, I felt, I think, for losing Bill. And it was weirdly... Uh, uh, coherent to me and available and um, I started working on it in 2014 and uh, it became a, a weekends and vacations obsession because I had this job and I couldn't do them on the same day because uh, the job was very crowded in my mind or crowded my mind and uh, and took three years basically to get mm-hmm. the first draft out um, but it was a super satisfying obsession. Um, I mean, I was as I was approaching the end in 2017. I was I was grieving again. I was really sad that this this was over. Of course, you know now that seems ridiculous because it took five years to get to publication and lots of revisions and lots of disappointments. Way more disappointments than satisfactions in the last five years, but. Disappointments, you mean, with the process of well, it took a year, or, yeah, a year to yeah. find an agent, right? Then finding an agent and thinking, oh, you know, kind of a, a really accomplished agent, thinking, well, this is the ticket, and realizing it's not, and then you know, getting this great endorsement from a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, Bill Finnegan, as oh, well yeah. as a great climbing writer and Dan Duane, and some other credible sources too, and finding out that that's not the ticket you know it's just one thing after another publishing is a a racket yeah it's difficult i mean you're you're treading into a realm with climbing fiction you know i think it's it's i mean it's fiction period but then if you sort of like drill down to it being climbing fiction yeah i mean it's always been i think it's been a little bit of a tough tough road for climbing fiction to get out there and and i'm you know i'm definitely wary of it sometimes i find that a lot of it is it's just a retelling of the real life stuff and the real life stuff can be you know it's already pretty damn compelling you know um i mean all that aside like was that at all in your head or was this just a i'm writing this thing i don't care what the history of of success in climbing fiction is or success in climbing literature is this is uh, oh in, this in, is what entirely. i'm saying yeah i'm yeah. i mean I, i'm i'm not interested in climbing literature Fiction or nonfiction. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm incredibly right. poorly read. I didn't read James Salter's Solo Faces until three months ago. That was mm-hmm. deliberate, you know, because when I started working on this and a couple of people found out, they told me about Salter, and I was like, well, sure, I'll read it, but not till I'm done. I don't want to have any taints here, um, mm-hmm. as well as suffer any, you know, humiliations. Um, uh, no, I, when, when I started this, it was purely quixotic. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't have illusions about being a successful writer, uh, which is very <laughs> freeing, you know. It means that I, I can right. kind of, you know, follow my best instincts. On the other hand, I'm really, I'm, you know, kind of a literary person. You know, the writers I like are, you know, Faulkner and Melville and Toni Morrison and, and, and Emily Dickinson. You know, they're, stuff, they're mountaintop stuff, if, if you ask me. So when I started working on this, I 
you know, I realized that um, there was going to be climbing in this novel, and there was going to have to be a, a, a sort of a core of whatever it is, t- tension and trust and fear in the primary relationship that was that was forged out of out of climbing or in and through climbing. So, I, it, so to, to there would at times be a kind of saturation in climbing activity and a lesser extent in climbing culture. And, and is that going to be off-putting to a reader? Well, my first thought was, you know, I may not finish it. Um, no one's going to read it. If it were any, if I thought it were any good, I wouldn't be able to find a publisher, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, at the same time, telling myself, and this sounds horribly pretentious, but it's just the truth, that this is what Melville did with Moby Dick, is to write a story that is, you know, centered around whaling, but it's not really about whaling. You know, in his case, it's about philosophy and epistemology and exploration and juxtaposed worldviews and and sort of uh, sloughing off his, his kind of Judeo-Christian um, upbringing, or the narrators, rather. And I, too, had this compelling narrator, I think, in, in Joe Holland, um, who, who's trying to unlearn and to learn and to grow, like Ishmael and Moby Dick. And I, too, I felt if I could make that story compelling, I could, um, I, I could trust that the reader would put up with a lot of unfamiliar jargon, vernacular, and activity. And, you know, I also put in some handholds in the name of a glossary uh, and occasional little, you know, I don't know, disquisitions or digressions that might make something that's arcane or obscure a little bit more accessible to a non-climbing person. And I'm really looking for the non-climber audience. I mean, to me, a climber liking this novel is is just too easy because there have been, <laughs> there have been too few climbing novels that are available to us and that are compelling and that also have a kind of, that also explore, you know, things like grief and, and friendship and recovery and all that. But for a non-climber, I think it's, it's a little, uh, my hope is it's an invitation into an interesting world. You also felt, or it felt like you wanted to be faithful and, you know, get it right and sort of honor the parts of climbing that are super esoteric and and weird and would be i mean when i sit down and have to explain them to somebody you know since honald you know blew everything up and you have to like tell your relatives all about climbing now it's like i get I, even as a person who talks about it all the time i get bogged down you know and like the fact that you've got these sections where you know these people are trying to uphold these ethics around bolting and yeah. uh, you know all those sorts of things be you're so in the weeds with that stuff if you sit down and try to explain it to somebody yeah. that doesn't climb yeah um but yeah but it felt like you still wanted <laughs> to keep this real faithful picture of climbing and i it's what kept me in the book um i think if you had started to go off into fantasy land with climbing or dumbing it down, I probably would have left. So you, you know, can you talk to that about your sort of faithfulness to what it is we do as climbers? And even when it gets weird and ethical and, and insecure in reality, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Just that was really easy for me, first of all, because you know, you described kind of my, my own relationship to climbing, which is obsessive and, and, uh, and 
deep and the topography of climbing culture is a real interest genuine interest to me and i you know i know about it and i talk about it with others and that sort of thing but i'm also aware that non-climbers just generally aren't that interested and too much explanation is lost on them you know so after a while i think a lot of those questions even if they're earnest they're unanswerable you know i think you kind of have to have been there at your edge to appreciate you know honald making that move in free solo you know otherwise it just looks like some gymnastic hijink type of thing this stuff about you know gear and ethics and you know whether you had a top rope or not you know all that stuff that's just so potent for us just doesn't make any sense to my aunts and uncles even if they ask about it but i wanted to be faithful to it i wanted a, a climber or a non-climber to um be getting something that's that i felt was real and true and the best i could do around uh flavor and feeling of things is why it matters and then i think what i managed to do was you know just by getting in this first having this first person narrative point of view which was just i'm so grateful that i figured that out early it got me out of having to a lot of those um, complications between how much explanation how much detail how much vernacular i just needed to tell it the way joe would tell it you know, I needed to know this narrator's sensibility and perspective as um, truly as I could. And so that became my kind of my benchmark. But, you know, just the other night, I was I did a reading, the first reading of the novel at the kind of book launch. And let me read a line or two lines. I'd known Pete through dozens of close calls and too many epics and accidents. Cold nights on exposed cliffs, mad dashes from and to summits and lightning storms, bloodied fingers and hands, plenty of falling rock. I watched him zipper his gear off an aid pitch on the head wall of El Cap, hurtling 60 feet past popping pins and copper heads before my belay caught him, and then whipping in a wild pendulum across the face just at the level of our stance so that when he flew by me, inches away, I could see the fright in his eyes. Though when he swung back several seconds later, he was cackling and howling, thrilled to be alive. There's a lot there that's really unavailable, sort of in kind of detail and in, in the technical stuff to the non-climber, not the least of which would be uh, uh, popping pins and copperheads. You know, there's no asterisk there. There's no uh, italics or explanation. I don't think either of those, maybe pin or piton is in the glossary, but I don't think copperhead is. It might be. But point is, you don't need to, my feeling is, you don't need to, have a visual on poppy pins and copper heads and having this, you know, zippering your gear, which is a phenomenon that every climber knows about, but no non-climber does, to have some sense of, of the, the um, I don't know what to call it, except the drama and the gravity of that particular passage. Because really, it's just about what Joe experiences in Pete's eyes, the fright mm-hmm. and then the delight, as well as the fact that, you know, they're tethered together. I mean, you kind of drill down on so many of the symbolic things that we, I don't know if we even, as climbers, I mean, we, we sort of talk about them, we feel them, but, you know, I think part of climbing, especially in the era when you're, you've got these, your two sort of main protagonists in the height of their climbing, like, I don't know if we really like think deeply about these things, but the thing sort of I enjoyed about the book is the way you're elucidating this, this bond 
you know, there's the metaphorical bond, but then there's the, the you know, the, the brotherhood of the rope or whatever cliche part of that we, we talk about. But And then going into something that we kind of glibly say, like, well, if you climb long enough, you know, you're going to know someone who dies. That could be something that, like, doesn't mean anything to a 22-year-old. And you can say it and laugh it off, but, you know, I've been in here long enough to, to have lived that. And so is that kind of like, I guess, as we move beyond the technical thing, you know, was, were those sort of your your like North Star ideas that you're trying to use this narrative to get to, or, or what were your sort of lodestar ideas as you as you were barreling through the narrative, if you will? Well, they I don't I don't know if I had them I I might have had them unconsciously, and then they they sort mm-hmm. of you know bubbled up into my notes into my thinking about what's next. But I knew very early on that the novel would be fundamentally about grief. And so the the work of the early part of the novel was to establishing or evoking. Uh, establishing is the wrong fucking verb by a mile, but uh, evoking, characterizing, playing with, dramatizing a relationship of such power and love that it would sustain the experience, or that it would you know trigger and sustain the experience of grief that the rest of the novel would be about. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew that's where I was headed. More mysterious to me, I think, was how I was going to kind of, I don't know, finish it or recover, you know, how there would be something that was redemptive. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's, you know, I think I get there. Uh, you know, again, I don't want to give away too many of the gooey details, but, you know, there is this big mystery. I don't know if it's a big mystery. It's a little mystery. It's a mystery even to me about the death that's, you know, that's central in the novel. And that is that, you know, this person died soloing and begs the question, how reckless was he, you know, going through a hard time in his marriage at the time of his death? Were there, were there any suicidal impulses? What's the line between um, recklessness and suicidal impulse? I was kind of interested in those questions, not so much trying to answer them or resolve them, but actually trying to, uh, trying to, to look at, how the living negotiate their feelings and their memories mm-hmm. around someone whom they're in love with who's you know who died so long the other sort of big question i have or or i had while reading it too was you know your decisions um around the historical part of the narrative you you've said it in in the east side the sierra and in a certain kind of pretty long time period um and then you've you've chosen sort of historical markers to kind of set that i believe and um you know another another you know another author could have chosen to it's instead of ron Kauk, it's bob whatever you know like it, you could you know play with the names or, or whatever but you decided to use you know these parts of history that kind of flit in and out or would be swirling around this era so how did you sort of decide um, those elements, what goes in, what what stays out, and how you think adding some of that stuff drives the narrative? Because, again, I mean, a, a lay, lay person that doesn't know the history is going to not make these connections that I made to him, and specifically what you just talked about in terms of John Backer, um, who died soloing, and maybe in some circumstances that were similar to to your protagonist um, in his in his everyday life. So I just kind of was like, well, was that part of it? Is he's telling me something with these things? Like, what what was going on with your decisions around that? 
I'm, I might not know, and I also might be just like <laughs> like dodging the question, but my, my answer is verisimilitude. I was just aiming for, you know, I want this to be uh, credible and kind of uh, situated in a historical context. There are all these great climbers that we all know, and then there's like a whole lot of other devotees, some of whom are really great. You know, my friend Jason Wells, was a great climber, but no one has ever heard of him um, because he didn't climb 514, you know. He just climbed mm-hmm. 513, just held the speed record on, you know, the naked edge, just, you know, did multiple routes on El Cap in a day dozens of times, but no one's ever heard of him. And I wanted Pete and Joe to be sort of in that group, maybe not quite as accomplished as Jason, but certainly as accomplished as many of the the regulars at the crags and fully invested during that 10 year period after the so-called golden age of, you know, Yosemite free climbing and, and, uh, the stone masters and all that, but before the boom, before climbing became a, a thing in popular culture and certainly well before the, you know, the gym thing took off. And I, I feel like there was this lull, this kind of sweet spot there in the 1980s where it was still pretty quiet. <laughs> you know, you could still get a campsite in Yosemite and the Owens Gorge hadn't been built up, but it was, you know, late eighties, just starting to be discovered. Other sport crags like that. Smith, I think took off in the eighties. So that's what I was aiming for. So these guys were kind of on the scene when the scene was over, mm. but there was, you know, something else developing around the edges. It was developing super slowly. It was very unhyped. And it was, I don't you know, it was a, a great time to be a, a serious, devoted, obsessed rock climber because it was pretty quiet. Just personal experience, too. When I, you know, when I would go up to the meadows in the late 90s, early 2000s, even now, last summer, even, you know, I'd always run into Ron Kalk and go to, I was at the Owens Gorge last month. I saw Peter Croft, you know, you just see, the, it's like kind of going to the playground and there's Michael Jordan shooting free throws. These guys, they're they're still around, and I felt like Pete and Joe were two who were around so much of the time that yeah, Backer would would recognize them, and if he didn't know their names, he would you know might play music with Pete in in the meadow as he did in that one scene. Um, Cal would give them some beta and lend them a cam if they're doing some obscure out in the meadows. That all that just struck me as very realistic, very plausible. Yeah, and it's funny because I know you're. I just. You know, I was like, even starting this interview, I'm like, well, what's what's like autobiographical? Where, you know, where are these things coming from? Which, you know, smartly and and deftly, you're like, no, 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 that's that's not me. And it's you know, just because my last name is really similar to my my uh, narrator, there's nothing to do with me. And that's cool. But like our life, I mean, as a writer and as a climber, you you can't avoid you know these life experience things like seeping in there. And I would imagine you. Two looked at those guys from afar, even when you were in your obsessive period, because that would have been the height of, I mean, really the height of their period too, up till um, the end of the seventies. And and I mean, they obviously went on to, but that's like the storied, the story era when those guys were young and and ripped and getting after it. So would they have been around like when you were? Yeah, obsessed I in, mean, in you know, when California? I was a kid, I think I saw John Long and Lynn Hill, and I'm pretty sure backer at Joshua Tree, but I didn't know enough to know who they were. I mm-hmm. just, I, I, you know, they were just there in Hidden Valley. 
I would run into. Wait a second. There wasn't like like there was they weren't like glowing and mystical and like <laughs> stuff coming off of them. <laughs> if I had known who they were, they would have been, but I didn't. Uh, but when I used to see Dean Potter all the time in the valley, you know, fifteen years ago, he was glowing and mystical because <laughs> I knew who he was. Because <laughs> you knew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's cool. I mean, I, I chuckled when you started talking about the 80s and like this sort of uh, period, because that's the, I, I go on endlessly on this podcast about how like the 80s got missed in history. And, and I'm, I'm sort of here to, to bring it to life, you know, and talk to some of these climbers that that were active then and, and, ch- and really changed the way we climbed and set up the way we climbed. And um, so I found that compelling, too, because I could feel that that era. I, I don't recall if you name years in there or not but if um even if you didn't i i kind of felt who these guys were and the sort of um community and and how that was an era when you could be extremely rad and doing you know cutting edge stuff and and be unknown i mean you still can but it was like there was very little pathway to sort of fame in climbing at that point yeah. anyway. Yeah, and I mean, that's... Only a, these handful of, like, visionaries really floated to the top anyway. Right. And that's what, you know, that's... you kind of describing what it is that drives Pete, Pete Hunter, uh, and Joe mm-hmm. as well in the 80s, is, you know, the capacity to, to be fully invested, to live for it, you know, to work winters so they can climb eight months of the year, to live dirt baggedy mostly and to do first ascents on great sometimes very remote sierra walls because they're there for the taking you know for the picking it's just a i think it's chenard who said you know people are going to take these yosemite techniques and and use them in more remote places and and, and joe says in the novel he writes in the novel he had it wrong you know what they did instead is they they upped the uh, the technical difficulties of the things they were doing you know near roads and mostly that's true but in the 80s, um, man, if you wanted to climb, you know, 5'9 to 5'11 on long technical routes in the Sierras, you know, it was, it was uh, wide open. So all their first ascents are basically from 19, early 80s to 1989. The last thing they attempt together is this, you know, north, north whatever it's called, northeast direct on Mount Moriah. Which is fictional, right? Yeah. There's no Mount Moriah, yeah. is there? There is no Mount Moriah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of routes in the novel that aren't fictional. Probably mm-hmm. most most expansively, probably the scene in the lightning bolt cracks in in Utah in part one. But there are a lot of routes that are fictional too. And I, I made the decision, you know, really early on. I don't think it was a decision. I just always thought I knew it, knew I would do it. That I I wanted a route that I imagined rather than one that existed. In part. Because it, whatever it was, it was going to be way too difficult for me to climb. So there was just that needing to be credible. Uh, if it did exist, I would have to know it. But also, you know, I, it's kind of an idealized route in some ways, you know, having the, its its particular flavor and, and topography and challenges. The also thing that was interesting is the meshing of, like, modernization of... Um, you know the climbing in the end of it versus the climbing in the beginning Hmm. um you were i mean you were very like obviously it mirrors your life in a way because you came back to climbing and discovered these gyms and now you're looking at you know these people and climbers who are athletic in a way that 
you couldn't even have conceived of in 1981 and um you know just mind-blowingly good at what they're doing um so it was cool to have you incorporate that um and you know and then you you like it's wild because you just got really into the like the change of ethics and the change of the way things were going to go down and um but you didn't really get bogged down into it so can you talk about a little bit about that like the idea of meshing the old and the new that ends up kind of happening in the end it's funny i haven't thought out loud or thought about it consciously very much except now that you're bringing it up it seems to me that will is the kind of embodiment or archetype of the modern climber absolutely purposeful intentional careful just uh you know amazingly athletic and precise and you know joe talks at times about how what what he and pete had aspired to be which was which was kind of you know of this ethos and and of this place um will will inhabits it you know as his nativity and and it's uh, it's natural and kind of easy for him in ways that it never was for joe and that pete tried to make it become and probably got there in some fashion um you know will says at one point tommy caldwell's the man there you have a whatever he is at the time a 20 20 year old 22 year old i forget how old he is there who emulates arguably the you know the, the greatest living american climber in or certainly a very great uh living american climber and uh and i think tommy caldwell has that uh you know is is different from his father who at one time was a climber too i think just has all the tools physical and mental and uh, and, a, and a kind of modern approach that's that has its own ethics. I think they're fine, great ethics, but they, they are also, it's about projecting something, projecting something that's unthinkably difficult rather than doing something in kind of quick, good style that's within your range. I like too that, you know, you had this evolution between from Pete to him just with how, and, and I've seen this like, um, you know, in my own sort of history in climbing and, and, you know, it, it kind of is connected back to 1981. I, 1981 is important in this whole thing. I don't, I know you try to downplay it, but I, I believe it is. Okay. Um, but like, you know, the seriousness and the, like, we are going up into this world, you know, where we're going to meet our crucible and like suffer and come out the other side, these like changed and be men changed, and all this yeah. sort of stuff. And then, right. yeah. And then it's like, I mean, Will has a, has a crux issue that's weighing him, but everything else about way he approaches climbing is also modern in that sense. He just doesn't have, it's just not the weight of it. And I've noticed that so much, even with, even with young people who are, who are traditional climbers, you know, who have gone the way of like a, a Tommy Caldwell, though Tommy's obviously an incredible sport climber too they don't seem to like bring this this weight and i was the same way i mean it wasn't 1981 you could have you know you could have it could have been 1995 for me that like i brooded in the meadow and it was all very serious and you know i could i could fall and die anytime like and i, I just also like that because i saw myself in in joe of a of a evolution of I and mean, he could have chosen a path where he found you know will to be annoying and and like losing the faith and like ruining climbing which can be a old old climber way of looking yeah, totally. at the world yeah um 
but yeah, so I mean, I don't really have a question in that, but uh, maybe if, if that was also sort of deliberate in creating the character oh, of Will. Very, very, very much. I mean, I, I kind of wanted Will to be light on his feet, light in, in spirit. Yes, he does have a, you know, he, he's got a lot of loss, too, and he's reckoning mm-hmm. with that in some deep ways. And that would be his big life challenge. But there's something about Will that, that um, makes me feel like he could kind of walk away from climbing. Like, people talk about climbing being fun. I'm like, really? You know? No, it's meaningful, you know? It's deep. (laughs) It's about, you know, personal evolution. For Will, I think it's also, it's you know, it's about challenge and fun. So here's a passage where Joe's thinking about um, just what we've been discussing, uh, his habit of sort of uh, overlaying his, his climbing activities and aspirations with layers of meaning that they, you know, may or may not be able to sustain, or at least this gets it gets it his inclination to do so he says an only child i was too frequently reminded several times by a sunday school teacher that others of my mother's pregnancies had failed both before i got here and after life in our circle was fragile and deeply contingent the grace of god underlay everything when i discovered climbing in college i found the exposure and the mortal perils thrilling but also profligate and unforgivable Early on, I'd make bargains. Just this, then no more. To domesticate the dangers, I began to think of climbing as a kind of meditation or even prayer. But I never got far from wondering whether I'd fallen under some perversion of faith, some dark and disfiguring spirit whose most avid embodiment, of course, was Pete. In the past year, I'd sent postcards to several seminaries and divinity schools and made more than little noise about making a move. So there you see, I mean, at least a certain self-consciousness about this phenomenon you're describing of being the, for lack of a better term, maybe the seeker climber as opposed to the, mm-hmm. the adventure climber. And, you know, and, and mapping one's sense of self and one's, you know, one's aspirations for personal growth on this activity that's about fingers and toes and exposure. Yeah, I mean, I, I was kind of wondering, too, as, as a writer and as someone who starts to examine all these things, and, and I mentioned, you know, having to try to explain them to other people. And, and in, in some ways, you know, you you don't do it didactically, but, you know, in this book, you are sort of explaining these things and, and why they're meaningful and why climbers pursue them. You know, did that ever occur? I mean, did you ever sort of write yourself into a place where you're like, God, this is really dumb, or this like this doesn't actually make sense. What we try to do up there, or were you able to sort of keep the the faith, you know, to to use a line from that reading, like that that it is important, even though you know it's bizarre and and absurd and and a, a ridiculous way to you know. I, you know, my feeling the, is that the this flower of your life. Yeah, I mean, my feeling <laughs> is that this this novel's fundamentally about Joe, and Joe would have these issues whether he were a climber or. a you know, or a bread mm-hmm. baker or a surfer, you know, he would just be mapping onto whatever he's doing, these kind of, these questions about ultimates and, you know, and purpose and, and meaning and that sort of thing. Um, at one point after Joe has left uh, the East side and he's on the phone with Pete and, you know, they're both kind of groaning on complaining about things. I think Pete's at this point onto actually onto climate change. Um, and Joe's, you know, church is falling apart where he's a minister and uh, 
you know, Joe writes that, uh, to, you know, just, just something to, to, I forget to puncture the solemn tones or something like that. Pete said, it might be an awesome, an, an awesome enough responsibility just to enjoy your life, Joe. And I think that that would be my answer to your question that he's always negotiating those things wherever he is and however he is. He just happened to negotiate them in the context of climbing in the 1980s and weirdly somewhat, I don't know, possibly tragically, it turns out that that was the most interesting and exciting, possibly appropriate context in which to negotiate them. Why did you choose Native Air, and was that a working title from the beginning, or did you have um, some other ideas about what it would become? It's the fifth title. The fourth <laughs> was Inside of Native Air. Uh, the others, you know, the first one is, is the most climbing uh, oriented it was it was called the working title was a fine line um, and my my good friend in Boulder Jimmy McClements still likes that one but anyway native air is from the Dickinson poem it's one of the epigraphs it's about grief it's the famous poem I measure every grief I meet and the stanza is there's grief of want there's grief of cold a sort they call despair there's banishment of native eyes in sight of native air I like this angle and chose it because I think it, it gets at sort of two things. One is the grief that is, you know, a centerpiece of the kind of feeling and, and drama and problem of the novel, um, death or caused by death. And then there's also this, uh, it speaks to what Joe is lacking when he decides to leave the Eastern Sierra and go back East and become a minister, which is that, that sense of being estranged from one's nativity. And I also like the fact that, you know, you, you know, she, she's saying there's banishment of native eyes in sight of native air. You can't see air. Um, all you can do is see things that are framed around air. And I think that gets at what Joe is. He's missing something elemental in his life. And to me, that is something that he got in the experience of climbing, that kind of exposure the kind of um, friendship and partnership amidst that exposure and that danger and that adventure. You, th you think you don't want it. You think you want to be, you know, down there in the valley uh, in the mountain room bar. Um, and it turns out that the only place that you're really uh, connected and alive is when you're, I don't want to say suffering, but enduring or uh, contending with that vulnerability that you get on a route, on a cliff, with a partner. So I want to ask you a little more about process. Um, did you have a, a solid constant reader on this thing or were you, uh, yeah, did my, you, did my, you do uh, the spit it out and, and hand it to somebody? Thing? No, my, well, it wasn't solid constant, but you know, cause I, mm -hmm. it, w one of the things about reading is you only get to read something the first time once. And I'm super mindful of that both as a reader and as a writer, I don't want to give something too raw to a first reader. Mm -hmm. because the, you know the second read will be so i don't know shaped colored and formed by the first read even if things are profoundly different so what i did was i i wrote it in th it's you know it's a novel in three parts and an afterward i would write a part and each part took about a year and then i would print it and give it to my partner spouse actually unmarried spouse my us courtney and I would mail it to my mother. My mother's a very literary person. She's elderly. Today's her 89th birthday. Um, but she's very with nice. it. 
and uh and you know this this was five six years ago she was even healthier and stronger than she's right now uh recovering from hip surgery she broke her hip but anyway um she's very savvy and then the the two of them would you know Basically, I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't go into this with high expectations, so I, I was just looking for an honest, uh, you know, response. And they both really like things. I mean, they both said the same thing to me after I gave them part one, which is you have a real, this is really cool, it's great, compelling, completely holds my attention, nicely written, etc. And you have a real problem. And anybody who reads the novel knows what the problem is at the end of part one, so I'm not going to spell it out here. And then, you know, it was super fun to try to solve that problem. You know, what's how, how are you going to make this as engaging and as layered given what happens, you know, at the end of part one? So how how big a roadmap did you have or how concrete a roadmap did you have? Because it's, again, there's all these ways in which to, I to write had and markers. people have their own methods, I mean, I was but, really yeah. super aware of the fact that if you're going to write about anything that has climbing or mountaineering in it, it can't be a summit story, right? Because that's just hackneyed to hell, right? And mm-hmm. it's also what everybody expects. And, of course, the great paradox is that in some ways Native Air is a summit story. It, paradox to me. But it's not about, you know how they got to the top and and a lot of the drama most of the drama most of the writing doesn't have anything to do with you know the route in question even though there are some pretty concentrated climbing scenes too i i knew that i i wanted to you know i knew i wanted to sort of fulfill the faulknerian axiom which is one of the the novel's epigraphs that nothing ever happens once and is finished so what what we're doing in the novel is circling around and trying to make sense of and trying to connect and reconnect things that that feel less available or lost so that that was helpful from a i don't know as a guide because i knew there'd be lots of looping back and so it was just a question of timing and and then also kind of location when to loop back and and how to provide context. I knew I wanted to do some things that would bridge the past to the future. And early in part one, Joe comes out to California with his wife at the time uh, and walks into a climbing gym for the first time in 2007. And, you know, kind of jaw dropped. And, and, and that also becomes this way of reconnecting with climbing culture. So, which is of course, exactly my experience. And then I knew that if the other theme that's kind of ubiquitous in the novel besides grief, it's male friendship, and Pete and uh, Cho's friendship would be the, the center of gravity of part one, and, and that whatever it is that Joe had to offer, Will and vice versa, would constitute a center of gravity for the second half of the book. How did I pursue that? Technically, um, a, a lot of it was like listening listening to what I'd written, revising what I'd written, and then just trying to time things right. So, you know, I know it sounds ridiculous, but there's a there's a musical quality to... Um, and I think it's more of an emotional musical. Like, how, how does the heart register and respond to where you are in the scene that determines what you do in the next scene? And, you know, things can't be sustained at a really high pitch you know they've got to get flat and mechanical and logistical and then sort of build back just trying to do that moving forward but also invoking scenes and sequences from the past 
in order to get that kind of emotional effect. An example would be when Noor tells, well, two examples I'll give you. One is, it's late in the novel when Noor tells Joe about her and Pete's first ascent of a route, it's a made-up route called Invented the Dif- Inventing the Difficulties on the Wheeler Crest. And it's it's the weekend that, that uh, Pete learns that she's pregnant with Will. And, you know, it, it evokes and a lot of the, the issues in their marriage, culminating in, in, in him telling her, you know, just let me have some pride and joy for a few hours and you can have anger and regret for the rest of our lives. So. And then another one is the, the two digress, digressive passages, one in part one and one in part two, with the Brits, uh, Lester and Bill. Um, those were, you know, two things that I fought hard to keep in the novel because they're obviously excisable. Um, they don't advance any of the, the plot or the extant characters, but they're really important to me because they're about storytelling too. And they're also about climbing culture and they're about uh, tension, uh, the tension that, that, uh, is, you know, that is always present in climbing the pre- and the danger. So you finished the book in a state that you, uh, you know, at least want to send it off to, to someone to publish that's out of your hands, um, or at least try to get it published. How did you find um, you had changed after this process, and or ha- had you changed, or had it been uh, a, an arrival at some sort of goal or, or new place for you, having gone through the process of creating these characters and living in them, um, you know, specifically living in Joe because he was the narrator, you know, or was it just like, oh, I'm done? <laughs> no, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't. I'm done. I honestly. <laughs> It, it's it, it felt it was unnerving. It felt I felt very exposed. I mean, I got rejected by a lot of agents before Daniel Svetkov picked it up, and we got rejected by a lot of publishers before Green Riders Press picked it up. You know, so you're hearing one is hearing. I heard many many times what people, you know, always complimentary notes. Almost always, I only got one nasty one, <laughs> but. You know, but there's something wanting. There's Sorry. something. Yeah, there's something inadequate. I can't. I, I just so hope that uh, the novel does well enough that this this nasty rejector has to encounter it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's your mode. You're like, God, please be on a display um, case in a oh, airport somewhere. You yeah, exactly. can jerk. <laughs> um, actually, you know, if the book does anything at all it would have been really good for this particular press it wasn't a big press but um no i just felt really exposed which was a a little bit like climbing honestly i mean uh, i think my climbing activity had helped me in some ways uh not enjoy but certainly survive and, and not overthink the levels of exposure and vulnerability that i felt having trying to get this novel you know out of the nest as it were and, you know, honestly, there was some grief, too. I mean, in, I think as recently as a year and a half ago, I just thought it wasn't going to happen. It's just right. not going to be published. It's it's too literary for the climbing community. It's too got too much climbing for the literary community, you know. And that would be the the, the dirty uh, rendering of, of why it wouldn't make it. So, Well, aside from that jerk, Rejection. How how did you get um how did you get this Bill Finnegan endorsement? Uh, a, a climber friend, Kevin Starr, who's a uh, mm-hmm. works for a foundation and, and is a doctor um, and a good friend here in San Francisco, 
uh, knows Bill through surfing. Kevin asked for the manuscript and sent it to Bill sometime in 2017, so you know, a long time ago, right after I finished it, maybe early 2018. And then in 2019, Bill was cleaning out something in a, his home, either in New York or Connecticut, I forget, and he found it and uh, hadn't looked at it, and he read it, and he just really liked it, and he called me, called me in the spring of 2019. And we talked for two hours, the only time I've talked with him. His command of detail was just unbelievable. I mean, it was like listening to, you know, a literary scholar read your work. He's just all kinds of things that he registered that I wouldn't expect a reader to be able to sort of summon in the context of a phone conversation. And, you know, like a few weeks later, he sent my agent and me that, that endorsement. And then, you know, we thought, I mean, the agent wrote to me and said, this is a good day. We thought, oh, this is the ticket. And like I said, it's, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, the other interesting thing Bill said, I don't think he'd mind my sharing this, is that he had a, he had a really hard time getting barbarian days out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and was even told at one point by his agent, do not publish it in this form. You know, it's not going to make it. And, you know, that's a, it's a freaking great book. I loved it. Uh, it's a Pulitzer Prize winner. You don't have to be interested in surfing or sports, I think, to, uh, to really appreciate it, to enjoy it. And uh, it obviously found, found the audience. So, you know, that's, that's what I'm hoping for. Did the process of this in the years you've, since you've been revising it and trying to get it published, I mean, there's actually been more loss in your life because in the very beginning of this interview, you bring up Jason Wells, who passed away in the interim. But has the process of, of dealing with that book helped you understand the original loss that you, that you felt that compelled you to sort of dig into to these ideas that were your own head? And, and also, has it changed the way you look at climbing at all? Such different questions. Hard for me to hold them both in my head mm-hmm. at the same time. I'm not sure it did change or or influence my feeling and understanding of of losing, of loss, of grief. I mean, you know, as a writer, at some point, you you also feel just very manipulative. You know, you realize that what you're doing here is you're causing feeling, as it were, trying to kind of engineer it. Um, and and so you know, we do that with you know with fiction and with language. You know, the, the timing is really key. The not overplaying the hand is key. Um, how, you, how you back away from it afterwards is key. And that's all about sort of, I don't know, it's art, theater. It's not really about grief or my experience of grief. So I think I, I kind of maybe segregated those. I don't You know, I guess the one thing I'd say is it, it just it never goes away, you know, changes shape and and temperature maybe but never goes away and i think that's true in the novel it's true in my life as you know i don't have to do anything more than bring bill and or jason to mind to really feel the sting of of their loss um as far as climbing it i I feel like i come to climbing with a greater i don't know self-possession capacity for you know personal reflection that relieves me of again, freighting the climbing with things that it can't satisfy or sustain. So it can be more what it is, which is to say, you know, totally focusing, very physical, uh, intellectually compelling, fun at times, challenging, 
I li- again, I like the way that it informs, shapes my practice in the rest of my life. Um, interesting culture, interesting people, always taking itself too seriously, sometimes not taking itself seriously enough, you know, can't, can't get that right, full of all kinds of admiration for others and denigration of others, I mean, uh, depending on their, their style or their, their practices or their values or how they're treating the crag. Or, and I also like being, I mean, this is fun, is I, I actually like being like the old guy at the cliff. That's a, in some ways a way more comfortable position for me to be than to have been the young guy at the cliff. I mean, one of the, probably the only thing I could claim uh, by way of an accomplishment in climbing is that I'm climbing pretty much as well as hard as I ever have, you know, right now. Um, and there aren't a lot of 61 year olds doing that. So, and, and part of that is that, you know, because most of those 61-year-olds used to climb things that were really hard. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm holding my own by my standards, which is really cool. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Jonathan for connecting, talking about the hard subjects. Hopefully some of the things he said will uh, stick with you for a while. And I think his book, Native Air, will stick with you as well, if you take the time to check it out. He would love for you to do that. Of course, purchase it, if you will. You can get it anywhere you get your books, but greenwriterspress.com is probably a good place to start. They have their affiliated links. They're the ones who took the chance and published Jonathan's book. And when someone puts their heart and soul into something like and when someone puts their heart and soul into something like this novel, it's worth your consideration. It's worth your consideration. Okay. Also, when you're out there climbing, having fun this spring, of course, consider your knots. Consider your knots and check them. Check your safety.